This episode is sponsored by Salesforce. We leverage the power of our people and our products to improve the state of the planet together with our customers. For more information, visit salesforce.com slash sustainability. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy filling in from northern New Jersey for Joel McCower, who's taking a couple of days off. On this week's edition, a New York perspective on decarbonizing buildings, insights from Goodyear's chief tire techie, and celebrating climate professionals. We're giving thanks on this week's Green Biz 350. It's November 20th, 2020. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me this week as co-host is Deanna Anderson, Green Biz Associate Editor and our resident beat reporter on circular economy and consumer product issues. Hey, Deanna. Hey, Heather. How's it going? It's all right. Um, just trying to enjoy the the cold weather here in Berkeley. Mm, I got cold. You got cold. What's your cold? I mean, it's way it's way more warm than uh, than New Jersey. It's in the sixties this week, but that feels cold for oh. me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. It is supposed to be twenty degrees tonight. To, so burr, but this feels a little bit more like Thanksgiving. Although Thanksgiving doesn't feel like Thanksgiving this year. Just curious, what are you doing? Yeah, so me and my husband, we actually in recent years have been spending Thanksgiving by ourselves, so it's not that big of a difference for us. Um, but it still feels a little bizarre because we—it's not the possibility um, that we can get together with um, family, especially because most of them are down in Southern California. So we'll be cooking, um, but this is this is typical for us. What about you? So we're having a little bit of a different experience. We usually have. Uh dinner with my husband's family and we will have dinner with his parents but we'll be much much smaller group this year although I will say that my husband and I and his family too are completely amazing leftover eaters like nothing goes to waste in our house (laughs) anything that gets cooked eventually gets eaten in some form maybe it looks a lot different than the original but (laughs) but we we do it we do it so Anyway, any any other things that you're going to be doing with the long weekend? We do actually get a long weekend. Yeah, so my <laughs> we were supposed to go to Napa. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to work since um, places are closing back up. Um, mm. So we might be doing that, but if not, I'll probably just be in my living room reading a book or <laughs> watching something on Netflix, keep, keeping it super chill since things are closing back up. Since things are not super chill, so we'll get more into that later. Actually, we won't talk about COVID later. What we're going to talk about right now is the week in review. I'll get us started, Deanna, with a piece from our contributor, Terry Yossi. He does the column Values Proposition. And as is 
the case with many of our columnists. He wrote about what he'd love to see Joe Biden do <laughs> with the first 100 days of his administration. And I think for me, one of the big takeaways is I've been reading these stories, um, you know, not just just Terry's, but others, is that we still don't know how, how effective he'll be with Congress because we still don't know the outcome of the Senate race. But we, we, it is pretty clear that uh, one of the chief focuses for President-elect Joe Biden will have to be executive orders, right? So regulations that he had messed with, um, and I will say messed with because it, it is a mess. But um, I think one of the things that's pretty clear is that that, that will be one of where things where Biden fo- focuses more qu- most quickly, as well as something he's promised to do, I think, on like day one, which is rejoining the Paris Agreement. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are, Deanna, on, on Terry's article. Yeah, I mean, something that stood out to me is also related to um, Congress <laughs> um, and how, how that will play out. Um, something that Terry mentioned is that Democratic senators from fossil fuel producing states won't really be enthusiastic about banning uh, existing or future oil production. Yeah, um, and exactly. Yeah. Earlier this week, uh, a group of about 70 progressive and environmental organizations urged Biden from um, including Obama's uh, energy secretary in his administration. So like, I'm super curious about how this will play out. It's definitely a mixed bag. We do know that it's a priority. And I think, to, to, to be honest, I think the extent to which he can tie climate action to jobs, he will be more successful. Um, because I think that's also the place where he's going to win over people that have that voted for Trump. If you, if you look at the places that did vote for, for the current president, uh, many of them were big win states. And I think... Um, playing on that and, and show, showcasing the, the, the power of the clean economy and creating jobs and, and being a driver of, of, better, of better circumstances for everyone, everyone, you know, would, will be important. So, so I guess we'll, we'll keep speculating in our minds um, and let's move on to our next story, which I really appreciate. It's a, one of the um, last pieces from our Verge 20 conference on, on one of the sessions that was part of the Circular Economy Program on circular cities. And this whole concept of circular cities has been kind of like tantalizing our readers for a while. It's been tantalizing me for sure. Um, and and the, it's the idea that you have a region or a city or, a, you know, like a metropolitan area that can recirculate resources. So it could be anything from trash to food. Food is a big one. Um, and how this could be a, a way of, of getting at many of the inequitable, inequitable policies that have been um, holding back communities of color and lower income communities in, in metropolitan areas. So the idea of if you're going to change a system this radically, you have to think about how that move from a linear economy to a circular economy really could be an economic empowerment engine for neighborhoods. What was your key takeaway from this, Diana? Yeah, so something that was interesting to me is this um, Circular Chicago Coalition that was mentioned um, or announced at Verge. Um, and Chicago, being a pretty segregated city, um, they are bringing together a, a number of groups, 16 partners, um, and they're hoping to go to the south and west sides of the city and ask communities 
of color, like what they actually want instead of prescribing solutions, which I think is not necessarily innovative, but I think it's important to like have that intention from the beginning when organizations are trying to make some change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny you use the word innovative. And I, I think that while I, and I'm a big advocate of innovation, but I think that so much, so much of this, what needs to happen is just systemic. It's just basic and systemic and really simple, not, not simple in like getting it done, but simple in its concept, you know, like address this, you know, I was just reading one of the stats in the story, which kind of blew me away. Is we, we often hear about the energy, um, impact, right? Communities of color tend to live next to, near or to polluting power plants, right? We hear that all the time. People talk about the energy problem. I didn't know this stat. African-Americans are 75% more likely than others to live near hazardous waste facilities. So the waste system, the, the recycling system, and and where these landfills are sited, I, I, I haven't even been really thinking about that, but that's a big factor in in redesign. And, and, and quite frankly, as as we come out of this pandemic and and individuals of every race and and income level think about where they want to live. Like, do I want to live in a city? Do I want to live in a rural area? I think people are being far more intentional about looking at that sort of thing. Like, what's near me? What will be near me? How can I how can I be affected? How, do I want to be here? So, certainly an opportunity for us. I think in the post COVID world. It definitely is an opportunity. And I I think something I'm always curious about as we like something that was mentioned in the story is like the rise of sharing um, companies like Uber and Airbnb. And I'm always curious if there are new um, companies with similar models, like how they can do that without being extractive um, from the communities in which they operate. So we'll see what happens. I think there's a lot of opportunity for for new (laughs) new models that help everyone. Exactly. So for our final story this week, I want to point to one you wrote, Deanna. It's a, well, it's a com- compilation of some work you did uh, talking to the emerging leaders that were part of the Verge 20 program. For those of you who don't know the Emerging Leaders Program, it's a, a, something that we do at each one of our conferences where we highlight and, and give opportunities to young leaders in the climate movement. They, they could be at school, they could be uh, young professionals. We give them scholarships and access to the to the uh, the participants and the speakers at the conference, and Diana, you've been great at uh, at at interfacing with each of these classes and and getting their thoughts about the conference in the in the aftermath, if you will. And uh, you wrote a piece um, with these emerging leaders: building the future of the clean economy starts now. So, just curious, some of your thoughts from this this latest class of leaders and and some of the things that stood out to you as you were uh, connecting with them after the conference. Right. So in addition to connecting with them after the conference, I was also part of the group of Green Biz uh, folks who kind of interfaced with them during the conference, too. And I will say that this group was super enthusiastic. And even though we were in a virtual world, I could like feel the energy that they had um, as they are entering the space. A lot of them are students. Um, and I think that they will bring a lot of like urgency uh, to whatever organizations that they join. Um, Something that stood out to me is from one of the emerging leaders, Galilea Mateus, and she pointed to one of the speakers at Verge, Andrew Savage, who is 
the vice president and head of sustainability at Lime, um, mentioning that he wanted he wished that earlier on the company would have set more aggressive targets um, and been more ambitious from the beginning. And I think it was super important for um, all the emerging leaders to hear the lessons learned from sustainability professionals um, before they enter the field so they can be thinking about these types of things as they mm-hmm. start their careers. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, one of the, the my favorite uh, commentaries, with, if you will, was from Taisha, Taisha mm-hmm. Makame from uh, Hawaii. So now Taisha is a plastics entrepreneur from, entrepreneur from the state of Hawaii and very humble, very, very almost self-deprecating. Um, but, but I think for me, what, what stood out was her, her, she felt at the beginning of the conference that she didn't belong there, that she wasn't important enough and she didn't have a, a large enough role. Um, but, but her, opinion completely changed as she was there and she grasped that even her voice as as what she calls herself the Hawaiian girl that fights plastic pollution by cleaning reefs with my little recycling startup even I matter even my voice matters um and I I really that made me just up, uplifted me because I sometimes I think it's really easy to feel discouraged like I can't make a difference you know each each individual is so important in this movement and I really appreciated her perspective and, and her epiphany, you know, as, as she realized that, that she, she does matter. And every, every thing that, that every individual can do to, to address climate change does matter. So that really stood out for me. Yeah. I appreciated her, her honesty. And she, when she responded to the request for responses to my questions she was like I'm sorry I was so honest and I was like no we need this this is refreshing and like I really appreciated her vulnerability in that um and I'm I'm, I'm sure that she will have a, a lot to say as she continues her career absolutely and I do want to say just for the listeners out there um we are accepting applications I believe still for the Green Biz 21 class of emerging leaders so check out the GreenBiz website, um, the GreenBiz 21 event site, you will find the application there for the next class of emerging leaders. We, we are dedicated to this program at every single one of our events, and I love to see it flourish and grow. So uh, suggest a, a young leader or uh, nominate yourself. California gets a lot of attention as a bastion of clean energy, but there's also plenty of action on the other side of the United States, especially in New York State. This summer, two organizations at the center of that innovation, New Energy Nexus and the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, combined forces on an initiative intended to step up support for growth stage startups. The mission of that program, called the Clean Fight New York, is to accelerate the commercialization of carbon reduction technologies, particularly those that can help decarbonize buildings. Joining me on GreenBiz 350 to chat more about the particulars are Kate Frusher, Managing Director of New Energy Nexus New York and co-founder of The Clean Fight, and John Hoekstra, Global VP of Sustainability and Cleantech for Schneider Electric, one of the initiative's corporate partners. Hello, thanks to both of you for joining us. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. 
Kate, tell us about the clean fight, why you launched it, and what kind of longer-term impact you foresee having on the reduction of carbon emissions. So give me the backstory. Sure. Yeah, so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the clean fight is a new nonprofit business accelerator funded by NYSERDA. And the thinking is that there are, you know, a good solid ecosystem now of incubators and accelerators focused on early stage companies. Um, so we're going to that next level um, to identify the most promising growth stage companies from around the world and to help them scale up in one of the world's biggest markets, uh, New York. Um, we gauge growth stage really by looking at whether the company has proven tech and uptake from a diverse customer set. And we use a million in revenue as a rough benchmark. Um, but, but the key is that they're ready to scale. And, um, you know, having been an operator myself coming into this, partnering with strategics like Schneider is invaluable. Um, and it's not just uh, short intros. We have six full days of time that our companies spend with our strategics in hopes of generating things like pilots or other significant business agreements. Um, those early big contracts that are you know, essential both for, you know, growth in their customer base, but also for, for their signaling power for other customers and investors. Um, we're also connecting the companies to investors in the space and honing in and providing very tailored technical support, like the one or two things that can help them build their capacity as they grow. We're doing this as part of a larger global effort spearheaded by New Energy Nexus, as you mentioned, which is a nonprofit that's working to spawn clean energy innovation on the front lines of the climate crisis all over the world. Um, but, you know, in New York, we're really building on the, the nation leading efforts of Governor Cuomo and in the city with the Climate Mobilization Act, where um, given that the state and city now have some of the nation's most aggressive decarbonization goals, there's this huge new need in this market. Um, some have estimated it at north of 20 billion for new technologies. And so we're hoping to identify and scale some of the new tech that, that helps us get there. John, why did Schneider Electric join the clean fight? How specifically is it involved? So for, for Schneider... Uh, working with the clean fight, um, we believe heavily in, in sponsoring the innovations that are going to be required to really get to uh, decarbonization and transition to a low carbon economy. So, you know, folks like the clean fight really helping to progress solutions like reimagined building materials, circularity, electrification, clean energy and renewables, as mentioned, and just overall energy efficiency in the built environment. We, we feel we can play a key role in helping to accelerate some of that energy transition, you know, and it, as you think about it, the building sector makes up roughly 40% of the global annual carbon emissions that we have. And so, you know, for, as the fight against climate change overall, initiatives like this are, are key. And so working with clean tech or, or even through our own ventures, we've got EIQ mobility, looking at, looking at EV um, uh, charging, electrification and fleet um, solutions, alpha structure and green structure, that are capital to, to really sponsor funding um, of these types of, of projects. Um, our aim is to help help bring the scale and the new solutions to market um, in a collaborative way. They're really going to help solve some of the most pressing, you know, energy and efficiency challenges that are that are really defining uh, the challenge ahead of us as it relates to mitigating climate change as a, as a global community. 
I'd love both of you to address the types of solutions you feel you foresee supporting. I know that that you're actually building up, I think, to the first cohort right now. But um, could each of you give me a little bit more perspective on the types of things you're looking for? Kate, let's start with you. Sure, and and I'm thrilled to say that we've actually uh, just selected our top our, our nine companies for the first cohort. Uh, we had 146 apply wow. from 19 different company from 19 different countries, and uh, uh, so I can tell you exactly the kinds of, of building solutions that we're looking at. <laughs> um, uh, 75F, which is out of uh, Minnesota and, and India, uses sensors and machine learning to pre- to preemptively manage the heating and cooling of commercial buildings. Um, so that both helps people you know, work in a more comfortable space um, and be more productive, but it also significantly cuts energy use. Um, Carbon Cure Technologies out of Canada saves CO2 from heating into the atmosphere by permanently embedding it into fresh concrete uh, during mixing. And this results in concrete that is both greener and stronger. I think they have a very promising path ahead. Um, We're working with a company out of Boston called and Enverid systems, and it's the first air purifying technology to clean indoor air at a molecular level. Um, this not only results in healthier buildings, but massively reduces the need for outdoor air intake traditionally required to maintain air quality, um, and it's resulting heating and cooling demands. Uh, we have a company out of Malaysia called iHandle Energy Solutions, um, and its proprietary tech uh, it allows for hyper-efficient temperature control of buildings by capturing wasted heat and recycling it for heating and cooling. Um, and I'll just give you a couple other fun ones. Uh, phase change energy solutions based in Asheboro, North Carolina, use their unique heat storage materials to keep buildings at a consistent temperature, so reducing heating and cooling needs. And uh, a couple out of New York, building on the ecosystem here. Brooklyn-based Radiator Labs is bringing steam heat into the 21st century. Um, They use smart radiator covers that disperse and regulate heat, preventing excess energy use and uh, the cost and discomfort from the common problem of overheating in buildings. Um, And we're also working with Block Power, um, and they're bringing financially underserved communities the economic health and environmental benefits of greening Uh, the heating and cooling of their buildings through leasing and managing air source heat pumps with zero upfront costs. And that's another part of this program. We're really hoping to find technologies that both serve our partners, like Schneider Electric and others, but can also be used for more underserved communities since uh, decarbonizing the Class B and C buildings is also a critical part of, of the road ahead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm happy to say I've heard of several of the companies. That's exciting. Uh, John, how do you expect to be involved with, with these and other companies? You know, we're continually looking to assess opportunities to um, innovate and invest in solutions that help really not only the built environment, but just automation overall. And I think one of the areas that we see a lot of future potential and a lot of innovation coming to the table is as it relates to the data that just goes behind these buildings and the uh, the end control and building management systems and so forth to optimize the energy use um, within uh, the built environment. And so a lot what we see 
is the opportunity to, to layer on top of those automation solutions, artificial intelligence and machine learning to uh, drive better predictability in terms of how buildings maintain everything from temperature to lighting to um, indoor air comfort and so forth to really help drive down the overall operating costs um, associated with facilities. And so we see many of these companies having some really unique um, technology and innovations bringing that to the table. And so the more that we can be there as, as a leader in a lot of these building solutions as it relates to uh, implementing systems in the built environment, that's where these collaborations are going to be super interesting for us as we move forward and uh, really help improve, you know, just the overall environmental impact of this, this, this key sector. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One final question for the two of you, uh, starting with Kate. Why now? Why is this so important, de- the whole decarbonization focus as we look beyond COVID-19? Why now? You know, I think, you know, first of all, this is the defining decade. We have to act as fast as we can. Um, so I think that's the the primary driver. I think that the COVID environment um, has, has forced everyone in real estate, certainly in New York, to take a step back. And I think that it may allow us to put in place, um, you know, technologies that that might have been harder to implement and to potentially think more strategically. You know, one of the things that we're really hoping to do with the accelerator is more than just help a handful of companies. We're hoping to really catalyze these different parts of the business community, the big corporates in the space, the innovators in the space, along with the regulators at the state and local level um, to look at the opportunities and challenges to decarbonize and come up with strategies. Um, And I mean, as part of that, I think it's, you know, we get a really good view of the broader landscape of innovation out there. And we're really excited to work with NYSERDA and other partners on where there, you know, still are challenges screaming for answers and to bring those back to the innovation community as a way of also accelerating uh, the type of innovation we need. John, bring us home. Um, it, it is absolutely the, the decade of action. And I think, you know, it's going to take, I love the, the use of the word catalyze, to catalyze not only these innovations at startup level, but really just broadly um, within the business community um, towards that transition to, to a low carbon economy, because innovation takes a lot of research, development, and investment to essentially arrive at not only technically feasible solutions, but economically feasible solutions as well. So we've got to move now, even though our bogey is still 30 30 years away, action now is going to be critical. And so Schneider Electric is is super supportive of of moving moving into action. Um, And so um, I think this this partnership and collaboration with the Clean Fight is just just one instance of the the type of effort it's going to take all of us to, to get there. Well, thank both of you for coming to GreenBiz 350 to chat about the initiative and can't wait to hear more about the uh, progress that you're making. Thank you for including us. Yeah, thank you so much, Heather. You just heard from Kate Frusher and John Hoekstra talking about The Clean Fight, New York. This is Katie Fehrenbacher, Senior Writer and Analyst covering transportation for GreenBiz.
When you think about all the flashy new electric cars hitting the roads these days, whether it's the latest Tesla model or Ford's new Mustang Mach-E, you probably don't think a whole lot about the tires connecting the vehicles to the road. But that's because you're not Chris Halsell, the chief technology officer for tire giant Goodyear. Halsell has been with Goodyear for 24 years, and today he oversees all aspects of tire technology development, from using AI to better manage fleet tire use to swapping soybean oil for petroleum in high-volume tires. Increasingly, he's helping Goodyear develop tires that can support new EVs for their automaker customers. Earlier this month, I sat down with Halsell, and he explained what kind of tires electric cars need. Number one is the rolling resistance, and that's been pulled by CAFE requirements in the past. But, but you know, now with the transition to electric vehicles, and maybe of note, you know, nearly half of our new OE fitments, so, so understand, you know, you get nominated, let's say this year, it's a two to three year development of that tire for that vehicle. Um, you know, we, the EV is, is taking a huge chunk of that work. You see announcements even of, of the OEMs moving, right, to investing in electric vehicles instead of internal combustion engine. So, so how do we connect into that? Well, you need tires that perform on that, those vehicles. And what we find with EVs is they have a new challenge. So based on, just like I talked about the trade-off earlier, the trade-off on an electric vehicle is, of course, the range, which ties directly into the rolling resistance, just like it tied into fuel economy. Secondly is, once again, the tread wear, but also the durability, because the, the vehicles tend to be heavier, and the heavier those vehicles are, the more loading and, and taxing they put on the tire, and it makes the tread wear all that more difficult to maintain along with that rolling resistance and deliver something that's, you know, both long lasting, durable, and has that fuel economy. And then the last thing is the traction requirement especially gets difficult because of the high torque that these vehicles are capable of. And so, so what, what we do to enable then the adoption of EVs is to come up with products that can now you know, deliver to even a higher level of standards in those areas. Because, you know, if people are dissatisfied with the performance of the vehicle, you know, that that probably taxes or slows down the adoption, right? Now, some of it's going to get driven regulatory. I get it. But I think, you know, that's the role. The tire, people you may not think about, but because that tire is that connection to the road, it dictates a lot around the performance, feel, and 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 how people kind of you know, enjoy the drive, right? And so, so you know, you, you, we, we really have a role here, and that is a role to deliver that same performance, that same seamless performance in an EV as an ICE. This is Joel McCower. It's been a roller coaster year with ups and downs in environmental concerns, social concerns, and corporate governance concerns, ESNG as the acronym goes. So how are companies faring in all this? Well, for the past several months, GreenBiz, along with the Environmental Defense Fund, has conducted a monthly survey to assess changes in external pressures influencing companies on ESG issues. 
And as we approach the end of 2020, it seemed a good time to check in to see how things are trending. So here to talk about the ups and downs are Tom Murray, who leads the EDF and business program at the Environmental Defense Fund, and my colleague, John Davies, vice president and senior analyst at GreenBiz. Hello to you both. Hey, Joel. Hi, Joel. So Tom, let's start with you. Why is EDF interested in all this? We're interested right now uh, because the moment we're living through is unlike any time we've experienced before. The pandemic, the movement for equity and justice, it's growing across the country. And the recent election have created this trifecta of factors that are affecting virtually every part of our economy, our personal lives, and our environment. And as a group that is trying to engage the private sector leading investors and leading companies to build the more sustainable, more equitable future that we're all talking about, we wanted to get a sense of who was emerging as the most influential stakeholders accelerating progress uh, and what issues they were prioritizing, ESG issues like climate uh, and social justice. Well, great. Before we get to some of those uh, findings and who the influencers are, uh, John, uh, who exactly did you survey? We surveyed members of our 4,500 plus uh, Green Biz Intelligence Panel. And we started doing this uh, in August and we've been doing this pulse survey. It's just two minute quick survey every month. Uh, and we've received on average 400 or more responses. And when you look at the data, we look at it split between companies with revenues greater than a billion and companies with revenues le uh, less than a billion. So what are you finding? Well, first, let me just give you the setup of what we're asking. I mean, we ask whether they feel pressure on issues around climate change, social justice, and governance, and where that pressure was coming from. So we asked about customers, employees, investors, and we also asked if they were pressuring their own suppliers, rolled all this data up into what we call the ESG Influence Index. So uh, I saw some graphs sort of look, showing some of the ups and downs. Um, climate change seems to be on an upswing, but uh, social justice uh, seems to be on a downward trajectory. Um, that seems a surprise. Uh, wh wh what did you uh, attribute that to? You know, I don't know that we can attribute, but I think one thing to look at is which respondents are prioritizing social justice. So when we look at that, um, when we started this in August, almost 75% of employees, and this is a role, you know, this is for companies over a billion dollars, 75% of employees said there was more focus on that. And in the following months, that's gone down to about 58%. I mean, that's still the biggest issue for employees. So I think that's pretty critical. It's gone down a little bit, but I still think it's, it's very important. Yeah. So Tom, what did you and EDF find most surprising about all this? Well, Joel, wanna, you, know, you and I have been at this for, for a long time. And um, when I started uh, working in this space as a climate sustainability advocate nearly 20 years ago, the biggest lever we had for change was really um, supply chain 
pressure and purchasing power. That was, that was the initial theory of change for EDF's work with leading companies. What I'm seeing now and excited about in the data and what's playing out uh, in the marketplace is kind of a, a reordering of, of those stakeholders and those leverage points with investors and employees surging to the top um, as being kind of two of the key stakeholders that are accelerating corporate efforts on both climate and social justice. And they were certainly not on the radar screen uh, when I started my career in this space a long time ago. Yeah. So, Tom, what does EDF plan to do with all this information? Well, uh, we're, we're using it to inform the way that, um, to inform our advocacy and the way that we're engaging with high impact companies and investors. And we're sharing it uh, publicly with you so that other advocates and, and companies can learn from it. Um, you know, I'm particularly excited about the way that young leaders and employees across the marketplace have been flexing their muscles over the last several years uh, with their employers on a whole host of issues, including climate change. Um, we've been involved in this space at EDF for a while um, with our Climate Corps program, where we have been kind of trying to train and empower and activate the next generation of climate leaders. Um, and we also we actually also have a new effort, uh, Joel, that we're launching uh, next week on November 23rd. It's called Degrees. Uh, and it's an exciting new podcast that features conversations with um, young leaders, change makers who are using their careers uh, to make a meaningful impact on the planet. Good. Got a nice podcast plug in it. We'll look forward to seeing that. Um, John, and of course, all of this is happening during a recession. And uh, you've also been on this for a long time and and uh, you've seen other recessions come and go. Uh, do you see any difference right now between this recession and, and the last one in terms of how these issues are taking hold within companies? Sure, Joel. I mean, one is in 08, 09, we saw sustainability departments getting downsized and in, in, case, in some cases eliminated. And today and this past year, it's been amazing to see how many people have been getting hired during a time when you only interact on Zoom. And we've seen a big uptick in that. I think the other thing we've seen, and this sort of speaks to uh, the Greenfin uh, Summit that we had last, last February and, and some future things we'll be doing is the role of investors pressure. And so we see in this data, we saw an uptick, not just in climate change, like the steady climb, but also it was one of the few, uh, one of the few pressure points that started ticking back up on social justice in November. So I don't know if that's because of uh, a pending Biden president presidency or what, but um, kind of exciting to see investors and, and the hiring reflected in this recessionary talk. Well, this subject never gets old, which is why uh, we uh, stick around, I think. Uh, John Davies is Vice President and Senior Analyst at GreenBiz. And Tom Murray leads the EDF Plus Business Program at the Environmental Defense Fund. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Thanks Joel.
Coming up next week on November 24th is the inaugural Day of the Climate Professional, an international initiative to recognize, celebrate, and catalyze the individuals working to accelerate a climate economy. In the words of Youth Climate Leaders, the Brazil-based nonprofit that's organizing the event, Stephen Carlson, the U.S. lead at Youth Climate Leaders, joins me now. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Joel. So what exactly is Day of the Climate Professional, and, and why did you start it? So the Day of the Climate Professional, as you said, it's an, it's an, it's an initiative uh, to really celebrate and mark a date so we can really start to recognize just who are the individuals behind all of these solutions and these actions. Um, and really also trying to demystify uh, the many roles and professional opportunities therein uh, behind these climate solutions and these climate jobs. So we really want to try to move the needle beyond just thinking a climate professional is perhaps a individual in the renewable energy sector. Rather, it's you know completely interdisciplinary. There's climate professionals that are in healthcare as well as in education. And all those in between, uh, you know, we all can be climate professionals um, in our own roles. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about the profession of climate professionals? Just how interdisciplinary it is. Um, I will say that I was under the impression, as as a student myself, of of thinking that a climate professional is a scientist. Um, it is somebody that is a climatologist. It is somebody who, or it's somebody who works in renewable energy. Um, obviously those are climate professionals, uh, and those are individuals that are evolving solutions, uh, to the climate, to the climate crisis, but they're not alone. So let's flip that around for a second. What's the most surprising thing that you think uh, climate professionals should know about the youth, uh, climate leaders community? So there is uh, across the Youth Climate Leaders uh, Network, which is encompasses uh, young folks in over 20 plus countries uh, around the world, so much energy, really young folks, super passionate, really eager and excited to, to really put all of their energy to catalyze, to push forward um, and to accelerate all of these many solutions. So something that's interesting is oftentimes young folks especially nowadays, everybody kind of recognizes and understands the critical role that youth are playing in the climate movement. Um, but one thing that, that Youth Climate Leaders um, is pretty intimately uh, connected to and, and that we see uh, pretty closely is the fact that oftentimes outside of activism, um, it kind of sometimes falls short of, of really understanding that energy um, that capacity that youth have um, to bringing it into uh, more of a professional setting, for instance. So what's going to happen on November 24th, Day of the Climate Professional? What are you planning? Yeah, so we, for this inaugural edition, uh, considering the circumstances of, of where we're all finding ourselves today, it is going to be completely virtual. Um, so it's going to be 24 hours. It's going to be a 24-hour virtual stream, if you would, uh, of, of different events. We're going to have upwards of, of 50 plus um, events that are going to be happening uh, that are being catalyzed by youth climate leaders, but also a host of 100 plus organizations that are participating in the Day of the Climate Professional. Um, and these are workshops. These are panels uh, with some really awesome speakers 
folks from government to the private sector to uh, the nonprofit sector. And finally, when, when it's all over, how will you know that it was a success? So we're already actively engaging those 100 plus organizations um, in what we're calling post actions. Um, so we've got climate pledges going on uh, alongside some incredible organizations like the U.S. Green Chamber. Um, and, and what we're doing is we're, we're really kind of hitting the ground running already uh, on follow-ups, on, on additional um, initiatives uh, that are going to last throughout the year. So what we're trying to do is, is really catalyze folks to see themselves as climate professionals, see themselves in these roles, uh, and to be able to provide some form of a platform, you know, across these many organizations, across these hundred plus organizations, uh, where we can start to, to share and, and disseminate and, and really, uh, you know, get this message out there that we all can be climate professionals. We all can put our efforts and energies uh, towards what we believe is the most important of causes. Indeed, we can. Stephen Carlson is the U.S. lead at Youth Climate Leaders, the organizer of Day of the Climate Professional, coming up on November 24th. You can learn more at youthclimateleaders.org. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events mentioned in this episode. Hit us up by email at the address 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Thanks to Deanna Anderson for stepping in to co-host this week. We'll be giving our voices and your ears a break during the Thanksgiving week, but I'll be back on December 4th with my usual co-host, Joel McCower. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Heather Clancy, wishing our American listeners a safe and gratitude-filled Thanksgiving. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by Salesforce. Salesforce set a goal to support and mobilize the conservation, restoration, and growth of 100 million trees by 2030. For more information, please visit salesforce.com trees.